0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the More Plants podcast. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be back in front of this microphone recording and spending this time with you. We are back after our Christmas break and we are starting off this year with a series in the podcast that is so beloved by so many of you. One of the most beloved series in our podcast has always surprised me because we cover hard issues, tough topics related to veganism, and why so many people are making this change. So many of you have told me that it was precisely this series that motivated you to go vegan, others to take as many steps in this direction as they could. It's been a very special series to me, and made even more special thanks to you sharing your stories and sources of motivation with me. And I am talking about all of the reasons why so many people all across the world are making that choice to eat more plants and many also to go fully vegan. Hearing from all of you how important this series has been in your own journey is why in our new podcast, we couldn't leave it out of the picture. And so we've updated it. We've revamped it. We've included new information, all in the hopes that it continues to inspire you, or it serves to arm you with information and knowledge on some of these issues, or it serves as a great place to point people to who have questions and want an opener into these topics. We will be covering the reasons why people go vegan when it comes to health, that's today's episode, and also the environment, animals, our fellow humans, and an unexpected one that happened at least for me, and it has to do with going vegan and how it brought so many benefits to my relationship with food and body. I hope you're ready to go. We're starting with veganism and our health today. Hi there, and welcome to More Plants, a vegan podcast by Bramble that helps you start, continue, and enjoy eating plant-based for your health, the animals, and the planet. I'm Kim Sujavalski, your host and certified plant-based cook and educator. In this podcast, you'll find all the practical tips, resources, and support you'll need to make your journey easy and sustainable, no matter where you are along this path. To learn more about our online courses, recipes, and blog visit Bromble.com and now let's dive into today's episode. Since we're tackling health today, I want to start this episode off by stating a few things so that you understand where I'm coming from. When I first went vegan over 11 years ago at this point, I went vegan for animal rights reasons and I had a question about health that helped me frame this way of eating and living in a very positive way for me. I wanted to go vegan because of what I had seen when it came to the treatment of animals, but I also wanted to know, because there was little information in the mainstream at that point, whether I could get all my nutrient needs met by eating in this way. In a way, I was asking, is it safe to eat vegan? Is it healthy to only eat vegan foods? I wanted to know if I could meet all my nutrient needs as a vegan. The answer was a big yes. Always with the caveat that one must learn some basics about vegan nutrition to ensure that through your meals and supplementation, you can meet those nutrient requirements. And this is easy to do once you learn some of those very simple basics. But the question in itself was even more important. It kind of put me in the place of wanting to make this change while also putting the focus on making sure all my nutrient bases were covered without seeing it as this automatic magical diet. No diet is perfect by definition. It's how you eat within it that determines those nutrition outcomes. It also helped me frame vegan nutrition within an abundance mindset instead of a restrictive mindset, as in what can I add to my plate to help me meet all my nutrient needs rather than what needs to be taken out. Although improving my health wasn't my main goal when I first went vegan, as I've gotten older, I have of course grown, and I think this happens to all of us, I've of course grown more and more aware of the almost perfect and magical miracle of our bodies, our systems, and how important health is. And so I've grown more curious as to how to best support it without it becoming obsessive or a source of worry. When it comes to the benefits of a well-planned vegan diet on your health, we could go from a very generalized and sort of simplified view of something science and doctors have known for years, and it's that eating more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, this all means great news when it comes to your health. But we can also get much more specific and dig into what the research shows. In recent years, a lot of claims have been made when it comes to either the magical and almost instant effects of a plant-based diet and their, the effects of this diet on disease prevention and treatment or to the dangers of falling short of nutrients on a vegan diet or the dangers of grains or insert food phobia of the moment here. Based on everything I've read and researched, the truth always lies somewhere in between. And I would love to guide you to the resources of the nutritionists, dietitians, organizations, and specialists that have Have been following the latest research when it comes to nutrition and health. Keep in mind that veganism as a more mainstream diet is fairly new, and we need more time and lots more studies to see even a broader and fuller picture when it comes to health claims and disease statistics. But fortunately, we have a lot of promising research now that all seems to point to the fact that when it comes to health, plants are king. Now, it is hard to determine which studies are the ones to focus on. Just this past year, a new study came out on twins that seems very promising, but the papers on it are still coming out and need to be peer-reviewed. Other short-term studies have come out through the years that people like to point to, but science is such a complex field, and determining which studies are good indicators of disease markers, statistics, and dietary habits is not easy. Not every study passes the test, and it's why among health professionals, some studies are mentioned more than others, and it's the case of the ones that I will be sharing and mentioning here today. Understanding which studies to look at is a game of give and take. For example, randomized clinical trials are the gold standard when it comes to nutritional research, but because of the expense and difficulty found in designing and applying these studies, they often measure short-term changes or are done with a limited amount of participants. Epidemiological studies look at much larger amounts of people, but they lack the control of a clinical trial. Meta studies often come in to look at what the majority of the research is saying, being a kind of overview of many smaller scale studies. Most of the information I'll be sharing today comes from two very large scale and extremely comprehensive studies that have followed very large groups of people for many, many years. And these are the Adventist Health Study 2 and the EPIC Oxford Study. The EPIC Oxford Study includes 65,000 participants and recruited a very high number of vegetarians and vegans and compares health outcomes to those in omnivores. And the Adventist Health Study 2 includes 96,000 participants with a specific population of Seventh-day Adventists in which there is a very high number of vegetarians and vegans as this is part of the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, making it a fantastic population to study the sort of long-term effects of these dietary patterns in the health of many individuals. It's why these two studies are often the ones that are talked about the most and that have offered so much wealth of information when it comes to these ways of eating. What I want to give you is a brief summary of some of the things we know when it comes to the benefits of following a well-planned vegan diet. And if you'd like to read about these studies more in depth, check statistics or the specifics of each study, I'm providing fantastic links, summaries, sources by some of our favorite vegan dietitian nutritionists, some of the sources and studies themselves, lots of additional resources come with this episode. Please remember that any mention of nutritional information or reference to disease prevention and treatment is meant for informational and educational purposes only, and that nothing should substitute the advice or recommendations of your doctor or your healthcare provider. Before we get into the nitty gritty, here's a note from our sponsor for today's show. This episode is brought to you by our online course, The Roadmap. The roadmap is an online course that will help guide the way if you're newly vegan, thinking of becoming vegan, or wanting to take more steps in this direction. Module by module, we take you by the hand through every step, covering topics like finding your motivation and having the right mindset when making this change, to how to build a nutritionally balanced plate, how to shop, prep, stay on budget, plan your meals, travel, get organized, and navigate every social situation as a vegan and so many others. There is no stone left unturned, and we do it all with that approach you love so much, in which missteps are welcome and there is no such thing as perfection. And of course, it includes the most delicious recipes and menu ideas. There is so much more included in this course, so head on over to brownwell.com forward slash the roadmap. To watch our video trailer to see the full list of modules, lessons, and recipes, pricing, and more. Again, that's bramble.com forward slash the roadmap. Now, on with the show. One of the benefits of eating a vegan diet seems to be that people who follow a well planned vegan diet have shown to have lower blood markers of inflammation. Inflammation in the body has been associated with conditions like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, infertility, Alzheimer's disease, and insulin resistance. So plant-based diets could offer protective benefits against these conditions. In multiple studies, vegans have been shown to have lower total cholesterol levels, lower LDL cholesterol, which is commonly known as bad cholesterol and lower triglycerides when compared to lacto ovo vegetarians and non vegetarians, while having about the same HDL cholesterol, commonly known as the good cholesterol. As both of these groups. Vegans have been shown to have lower rates of high blood pressure than lacto-ovo vegetarians and non-vegetarians. Vegans have a lower BMI and body fat percentage than lacto-ovo vegetarians and non-vegetarians. And studies show that people who have been vegan for more than five years have the lowest BMI of all the diet groups studied. When looking at heart disease, incidents in the EPIC-Oxford study in 2013, results showed that vegetarians had a statistically significant 30% reduced risk of heart disease. The Lifestyle Heart Trial indicated that a whole foods vegetarian and in turn a vegan diet can be effective in the reduction of atherosclerosis and heart disease as part of a lifestyle change. When looking at the risk for diverticular disease in the EPIC Oxford study in 2011, EPIC Oxford found that vegetarians had a 13.1% percent lower risk of diverticular disease when compared with meat eaters. And also in that same study, the EPIC Oxford study, which you're going to hear me referencing a lot, in 2011, vegans appeared to have a 40% lower risk of cataracts than those eating more than 100 grams of meat per day. Findings are also very promising when we look into research done on vegan diets and diabetes. Studies show that vegans have a lower risk of type 2 diabetes than non vegetarians. I want to quote registered dietitian nutritionist Jack Norris on this topic. The only prospective study measuring rates of diabetes in vegans, the Adventist Health Study 2, found them to have a 60% less chance of developing the disease than non-vegetarians after two years of follow-up. Previously, a cross-sectional report from the Adventist Health Study 2 showed vegans to have a 68% lower rate of diabetes than non-vegetarians. A number of clinical trials have now shown that a vegan or mostly vegan diet, Diet can lower body weight, reduce blood sugar, and improve other parameters for type 2 diabetes. He then continues to conclude that, and I quote, a whole foods vegan diet is safe for people who have type 2 diabetes and is as beneficial, if not more so, than a typical ADA diet. And the ADA diet is the standard American Diabetes Association diet. Although the link between diets and health markers for cancer prevention is much harder to determine when compared to looking at cardiovascular health markers for determining the risk of cardiovascular disease, we do know that many of the dietary habits, foods, and healthy lifestyle choices that vegans include have health-promoting benefits that can reduce your risk for certain cancers. When it comes to cancer risk, plant-based diets could give us a slight edge, as shown by the new guidelines provided by the World Health Organization and the American Institute for Cancer Research in recent years. Since vegans not only have a very high intake of fiber, which is associated with protection against certain types of cancers, like colorectal cancer. But they also, well, we also abstain from certain animal products that have now been classified as known carcinogens. And I think we all remember when a few years ago, these recommendations came from the World Health Organization and this classification of certain meat products when it came to carcinogens. According to the World Health Organization, every 50-gram portion of processed meat eaten daily increases the risk of colorectal cancer by about 18%. Processed meats, and that is cured meats, ham, deli meats, bacon, sausages, and others have been classified as carcinogenic to humans and were classified as a group one carcinogen. Some vegan advocates and resources might have you believe... And I've seen this and it, oh, it makes my skin crawl because I don't need, I don't think we need to go this far, but some vegan act advocates are going to have you believe that since tobacco and asbestos are also group one carcinogens, that having your children eat a bologna sandwich is akin to letting them smoke a cigarette. And I want to take the opportunity to debunk this idea. I think we can be great vegan advocates and still talk about these issues based on the actual scientific evidence, looking into how terms and classifications are defined. It's important in this case, especially. In the case of this group one carcinogen classification, All this means is that the parameters for placing one food or one product in the same category relied not on the risk it posed to getting the illness, but on the amount of evidence that showed that the agent was a cause of cancer or could be a cause of cancer. In other words, this doesn't mean that they are both equally dangerous. It means... They had comparable amounts of evidence to suggest that these foods or agents can cause cancer. There's an important difference there in the way this specific classification by the World Health Organization is defined. However, the IARC working group has concluded that there is a strong link between eating processed meat and specifically colorectal cancer. An association with stomach cancer was also seen, but without conclusive evidence. When it came to the World Health Organization recommendations and the consumption of red meats, they stated that, and I quote, the strongest but still limited evidence for an association with eating meat, red meat, is for colorectal cancer. There is also evidence of links with pancreatic cancer and prostate cancer. The American Institute for Cancer Research has also stated that choices to reduce cancer risk include a diet rich in whole plant foods and low in red meat, processed foods, sugary drinks, and alcohol. As you can see, although we still don't have the scientific data to compare rates of cancer in vegans and non-vegans conclusively, we can definitely see how a vegan diet might give us an advantage since it excludes many foods that have been linked with cancer, and it includes the fiber-rich plant foods and antioxidants linked with cancer prevention. Now, there is no evidence to date that a vegan diet is the only healthy way to eat, and I by no means want to suggest that with this episode. There are many healthy ways to to eat, many ways to eat that across cultures have created good health outcomes. It doesn't mean that by being vegan, you are guaranteed never to get any of these illnesses. It doesn't mean that by just deciding to go vegan, your diet will automatically be healthy and complete, nutritionally speaking. Nor does it mean that if you don't follow a strict vegan diet, you are bound to get sick. I think it's important to talk about these issues based on the information we have right now, based on the research. And having said this, as you'll see when you dig into many of these studies, there is no doubt that a nutritionally balanced vegan diet is safe. And that's one thing that I want to share because I remember that when I went vegan, this was a concern I had. I didn't know a single vegan around me. I had watched documentary. I had read one book and I really had the question, is this way of eating going to be safe? Is, is it going to provide all of the nutrients I need? When you go into this research, when you read some of the recommended resources that I'm going to link to, some of the amazing books by Registered Dietitian Nutritionists that specialize in vegan diets, you'll see that it is safe. And not only is it safe, but it can provide so many health benefits. And that's how I want you to take the information that I'm sharing today. I want to quote Registered Dietitian Virginia Messina, who you know I love, one of the leading experts in vegan nutrition. There is no body of evidence to suggest that you have to be vegan in order to be healthy. The evidence does not suggest that every disease in the world is reversible with a low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet. And yes, it is possible to fall short of nutrients on a vegan diet if you aren't paying attention to food choices. And I chose to include this quote because what happens when we automatically believe false health claims even when they are putting a vegan diet in a magical positive light. Here, we are causing more harm than good. And part of the reason why I wanted to share all of this information is both to reassure you that it is a diet that is safe when you make sure to have all of your nutrient needs met, that it can be beneficial to your health, that it has been associated with fantastic health outcomes, that so many physicians are now recommending it for disease prevention and even treatment as part of treatment. But I also wanted to share this because I want to give you more nuance and share how we are now taking a Of our health into our own hands, in terms of realizing that there's so much we can do to add benefits and positive outcomes and positive changes into our lives, but that it's also not a magical thing. We need to pay attention to getting those nutrient needs met. And what can happen is people fail to learn how to build a balanced plate. People sometimes even fail to get regular blood work done or to go to medical checkups or get required routine medical exams like colorectal exams or mammograms that could catch diseases early. It's so important to remember that no diet, no diet is by definition perfect, but we can have a very healthful and balanced vegan diet that is not only health-promoting as we've shown you with what science has shown so far, are the many benefits of eating more plants, but that is also more sustainable, helps protect our precious environmental resources, not to mention prevents the unnecessary cruelty we put animals through. To my knowledge, when you put all of these factors together, there is no other diet that provides so many benefits, which include, but go beyond health benefits. A vegan diet is not only about trying to not consume animal products, but about all the benefits of adding in nutritious plant foods that have health-promoting qualities, such as an increase in dietary fiber, a reduction in dietary cholesterol and saturated fat, an increase in antioxidants, which help protect against certain diseases and many others, it's not only what you're not having, it's the space on the plate that will now be filled with healthy foods that can also be made into your favorite dishes so you never feel deprived, so that it doesn't become excessively restrictive, so that you are ensuring that you're meeting nutrient needs and all of the other sides of eating that are so important, the community around food the comfort we get from food, the satisfaction we get from food, all of that can go into that little packet. Now there's another area of health that I think is important to discuss when we talk about veganism. I debated whether to discuss it in an episode on health or on animals as it sort of intersects the two, but ultimately, and because of the recent pandemic that we all went through, which hadn't occurred when I first created the series, I decided to include it now here. There is one aspect of eating animal products that can affect our health and is often not talked about, and it's that the raising of animals for food in closed quarters, under the conditions they are kept in, the huge number of Animals in close contact with humans, the existence of live animal markets, and more are very fertile grounds for the emergence of zoonotic diseases. Zoonotic diseases are illnesses that begin in animals and eventually get transmitted to humans. Most of the ones we've seen in our history have been linked to animal agriculture and selling practices. I'm not going to talk about the terrible pandemic we've just lived through because they still haven't determined the exact origin, although one of the two prominent theories is that it is a disease of zoonotic origin. But we can say it definitively for many of COVID's predecessors, if you will, and these were prior coronaviruses that caused less of a global impact, but that were infectious and deadly as well. Mainly, I'm talking about the SARS virus and the MERS virus with a mortality rate of 10% for SARS and 35% for MERS, but thankfully, a lower rate of transmission than what we saw with COVID-19. In the case of SARS, a virus that first appeared in bats and then passed to civet cats and finally to humans, its origin has been tracked back to the rise of the wildlife trade and the cramped and unhygienic conditions of the growing live animal markets. And MERS, a virus that was passed down onto humans by camels as the intermediary hosts has been traced to the increased number of camels in the Middle East in high density, and enclosed systems of farming. Both of these viruses have been categorized as zoonotic diseases and both originated in environments where humans are manipulating breeding and closing and selling animals. One of the main reasons for the spreading of these viruses in these markets and breeding grounds, slaughterhouses, et cetera, is that the huge amounts of animals are closely packed together and transmission becomes so much easier The close contact between them and humans in these spaces, as humans are, of course, the ones keeping them enclosed, feeding them, breeding them, killing them if raised for food, all of this situation makes the zoonotic transmission much more likely when the virus is, let's say, in very colloquial terms, ready to be transmitted or to pass on to humans. And it's very scary. COVID-19 transformed and changed our world, and yet it didn't even come close to what happened in the most severe pandemic in our recorded history, a Category 5 pandemic, the highest number in the CDC Pandemic Severity Index chart, and that's the 1918 Influenza pandemic, also known as the Purple Death, a zoonotic disease that originated in a military camp in the United States and spread across the world as soldiers went to Europe towards the end of World War I. The history of the influenza pandemic of 1918 is so interesting, it is tragic, unimaginable, that, oh my goodness, I could write and record a full episode on it alone and doing the research for this. It was very scary. I will be leaving some great resources if you want to do a bit more digging, especially on how the world's circumstance was the perfect place at that time and at that historical moment for it to spread in a time in which we didn't even have the transportation, travel, and globalization that we have now. What's relevant to our topic today, though, is that the influenza virus that caused the 1918 pandemic was a strain of avian influenza. And that most of the types of flu that have pandemic potential, mainly influenza type A, first began with the domestication of ducks and through the domestication of other animals for food, these viruses started to be transmitted to humans. Domesticated farm animals like birds such as ducks and chickens, pigs, also horses, have been strongly linked to zoonotic diseases and especially to the influenza virus. The World Health Organization states that, and I quote, historical data shows that all pandemic influenza occurrences originated from animals, all subtypes of influenza type A viruses have zoonotic potential, and pigs are ideal candidates for reassortment or mutation of influenza viruses. I do think that in the next few years, we will likely learn more about the origin of the pandemic that affected our lives in recent years, but regardless of which of the theories is confirmed, or even if one ends up being confirmed or not, there is no questioning of the fact that zoonotic diseases and pathogens are responsible for most of the epidemics and pandemics we've seen in our history, not only the great flu of 1918, but also get ready, tuberculosis, brucellosis, the bubonic plague, measles, whooping cough, diphtheria, smallpox, and the many variants of the influenza virus, including avian influenza and swine flu, which had a particularly clear path of transmission in and between pig farms and slaughterhouses. We also have, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kreutzfeldt Jacob disease, also known as mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy, the AIDS virus, among countless others. One of the biggest ways they get transmitted between animals and eventually to humans is the manipulation, domestication, feeding, and handling of waste in the handling of live animals. In many cases, these have originated in live animal markets and farms where animals are raised for meat, eventually becoming an illness that can spread from human to human, and that's where things can get out of hand. It is estimated that the 1918 influenza pandemic killed anywhere between 20 to 50 million people, some health organizations and research groups giving a much higher figure closer to 100 million. As a comparison, based on the pandemic most of us have lived through, and although data also varies here, it is estimated that almost 6.8 million people have died due to COVID-19. And the difference between these two pandemics is just too staggering to comprehend, especially after having lived through a pandemic that changed our world. Add to these world-changing epidemics and pandemics other health problems that can arise and stem from the way the animals are bred, raised, and kept, and also the disposal of waste from these farms. And here I'd include issues like antibiotic resistance and foodborne pathogens, The use of antibiotics in farmed animals far, and I mean far, exceeds the use of them for medical care in humans. And because of the ways animals are kept, it has become a necessity in these farms to keep them from getting diseased in the closed quarters and conditions. And strains of antibiotic-resistant bacteria have already been found time and time again, And the rate of antibiotic resistance in humans continues to rise. This is extremely dangerous for the health of human beings, as antibiotics are sometimes the only line of defense against some of these illnesses. And when bacteria become resistant to it, we are left with no line of defense and no action plan. Antibiotics are also widely used in farms to promote faster growth of the animals to get more meat and have them be more profitable, adding to the problem. And then we have the issue of foodborne pathogens, which can also be detrimental to our health and often pop up. In our food supply because of leaks or spraying of animal waste close to farms that grow fruits and vegetables and that we in turn eat. And of course, on meat itself in the slaughter rendering and packaging process. Now, animals are going to have their own uh, space and time and episode and installment in this series, but I needed to mention these facts here because there is no question that the way we treat and close breed animals for food and other purposes, it puts our health and our survival at great risk and something needs to change. We will explore more of these this side of of things in an upcoming installment of this series. A book that you'll hear me mention in the upcoming installments is the book This is Vegan Propaganda by Ed Winters, which includes a section of the book with an extensive look into the history of infectious and zoonotic diseases and tons of data on past and present standard practices in animal farming that can affect our health as well as the animals and our environment. So check that out if you haven't already. Thankfully, as human beings, we have another way. This way, and by this, I mean the elimination and even the reduction of animal products in our diets can have so many positive impacts on our health and so many other areas of our lives, as you'll see in the upcoming installments in this series. What I want to leave you with here is this, plant-based isn't the only healthy way to eat, nor does it mean that any amounts of animal products in the diet will automatically mean poor health, nor does it negate the fact that certain animal products can be beneficial in terms of their nutrition. There is no evidence to support that you cannot be healthy unless you eat a vegan diet, a fully vegan diet. What I do want to emphasize is that for all the other benefits that eating plants can bring to the animals, our planet, our fellow humans, and yes, also to us, we can not only survive, but we can thrive on a well-planned vegan diet. We also now have growing evidence that this way of eating can provide added benefits when it comes to the prevention, and even in some cases, the treatment of certain diet-related conditions and chronic diseases. It's also an important thing to remember that health is determined by so many variables other than the way we eat. It is determined by socioeconomic factors, the presence of a solid community and company, movement, managing of stress levels, access to fresh fruits and vegetables, your sleep patterns, your stress levels. So taking a step back and looking at all of these factors, not just the way you eat, can give you a broader picture and plenty of areas to work on if you can't do everything in one area right now. If you're thinking, yes, yes, I know there are benefits to eating a plant-based diet, but isn't it too hard to follow and maintain a vegan diet in the long run? I'd miss my meat and my cheese and my fish too much. If this has crossed your mind, know that you are not alone. And that's precisely why we do what we do at Brown It's why we have all of our courses. It's why we have this podcast. It's why we have our YouTube channel, all our free courses. We teach you all the basics of what you need to know, how to apply it, how to cook deliciously, and how to transform this way of eating from just another diet to a lifestyle that will accompany you for the rest of your life. And that signifies much more than simply a way of eating and a way of doing it in which it does not take away from your peace of mind, your mental health, something that can truly be sustainable and doable for the rest of your life or as long as you wish to partake in it. The studies I've mentioned today aren't by any means the only ones, and with the growth of plant-based diets and them becoming something that more and more people are choosing, we'll probably see more evidence coming through in the next few years, but I'm going to leave it here for today. As we move forward to the next cornerstone of why a vegan diet can be so beneficial in our next installment, don't forget to check out all of the resources that we are linking to including the remarkable work in easy-to-understand graphs and articles and summaries by registered dietitian nutritionist Jack Norris, Virginia Messina, articles by the World Health Organization, the books Vegan for Her and Vegan for Life, the findings of the epic Oxford study, the Adventist Health Study Two. I hope this episode serves you and helps you that you check out these resources and arm yourself with information so that if you are inspired to make this change, you do so responsibly and learn what you need to learn to ensure your body and mind are both happy, healthy, and thriving with good nutrition and also flexibility and balance as well. I'll see you in our next installment. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us reach more people who are interested in making more vegan choices and need some support. Remember that you can find all of the show notes, links, and many additional resources for this episode in the description below. And of course, don't forget to visit bramble.com to learn more about our online courses, recipes, and blog posts. Till next time, everyone.